Live from Washington, D.C., it's quintessential listening. Poetry Online Radio. QLPOR, as it's widely known, features a bevy of poets, spoken word artists, and live poetry readings with best-selling authors. Your host is Dr. Michael Anthony Ingram. Hello, everyone. I'm here with Rick Spizak. There's so many areas where he has excelled that it is very difficult to choose one to highlight. Considering this as a poetry podcast, we'll focus on his acclaimed literary works, his unique live poetry performances, as well as his hosting duties and producing of the highly popular international literary webcast, Poets of the East. The webcast just ended its fifth season and has featured poets from Asia, Europe, and the Americas. Last but not least, his new poetry collection, Stone Poetry, is scheduled to be published this summer. Hello, Richard. Thank you for joining me. My pleasure, brother. My pleasure. I admired your work. It, it's exceptional, really fine work, and I appreciate your invitation. I feel honored that you would join me today. Let's begin this poetic journey. Rick, what is poetry? I think that poetry is the most potent use of language distilled to its very essence to establish impact, to communicate more forcefully than any other way of speaking. And I have to tell you, I've thought about this long and hard. I know what conventional thinking is. I think there's a perverse kind of logic that poetry is dismissed out of hand, that poetry is considered considered an accessory to language, and no serious person writes it. And I turn it around and say this, if poetry wasn't effective, would you hear chanting at football games? If poetry wasn't effective, would you hear it in sound lyrics? If poetry wasn't effective, would you hear soldiers chanting on their way to war? And I say, if it's used in sports, it's used in commercial marketing, it's used in war. This is a various, very serious use of language. And I think they trivialize us to try to, to try to put us in a box. But I know that poetry is the most effective way of using language to communicate powerfully some of the most important truths of the human heart. You speak with such conviction, Rick. Tell me more. Where does this come from? This level of Conviction, that's the only word that I can think of at the moment. Talk to me. Well, my academic background is a very curious one. From my youngest years, a love of history, a love of literature. One of the first books I was given when I got out of the preschool stage of things, I got a copy of the Iliad. And I read that book. I devoured that book. And I, I thought, my God, the heroics, the beauty, the pathos, it's in to my mind it's shakespearean okay now i had an uncle who was an anthropologist by training but a history teacher so that he could afford his knowledge okay and we would talk about history we would talk about human nature when i was seven eight and nine he gave me his college books on cultural and physical anthropology and i devoured them 
I absolutely devoured them. And what it gave me, it gave me a sense of, if you will, the relativity of culture. How culture isn't just the box I grew up in with the belief system that I've got, with what my parents believe, with my religious training, with my cultural behavior, all of that. That's a contrivance. That That is a slot in the vast human experience. So I just absolutely loved anthropology. I loved human diversity. It seemed to me to be this wonderful rainbow of, of human experience. One of the things that that I, I enjoyed so much was understanding power of words, power of ideas, how cultural culture is enforced, is inscribed, is contrived, is reinforced by language, by ritual. Now, you go back, the oldest stories that we know are ancient poems, poems that came to us by storytellers who used rhyme, who used that language of poetry to capture the imagination, to train us to know what we should believe. So when I hear the power words, the power songs, whether it be a ghost dance of, of indigenous natives, or it's the, the chance of warriors going to battle in ancient Greece and, and Rome, when I, when I hear these poems that come to us from antiquity, I know that this is the way to pro to explain language. I know in the popular song that captures so many hearts, right? Very commercial, very trivial even. But poetry is the hook, is the use of language. They're not doing free verse. They're not, it's not stream of, there are the exceptions, Marshall McLuhan and a few others who just read straight language. But the, what the heart is captured by is verse. I, I put all this in that context of Rick, the anthropology student, and I say, I look at language, and I say, when I want to convince you of something, I'm going to use rhyme. I'm going to reinforce my statement with repetition. I'm going to use chanting, right, to capture the heart. How much religious training is outside of chanting? Not much. There's an awful lot of prayers that are a chant, right? So I think that poetry is literally enchanting <laughs> oh, again it's the it's the conviction the fervor and the passion now before i ask my second question there are those out there who believe that poetry is dying what do you think what are your thoughts i'll, I'll tell you being a standard issue working class american by birth right I, I knew to dismiss poetry out of hand, but my heart and my spirit, which was captured by jazz music when I was just a kid, I started playing trumpet in, when I was seven, I know, eight, eight, and I, I was captured by jazz, and I know that it was dismissed, right? Mm -hmm. But my heart didn't dismiss it. And then when I heard in my early teenage years Jim Morrison reciting his celebration of the lizard. I knew that real men wrote poetry too. I, I had known in academia, yeah, there's the Coleridge and there's this one and that one. And, and it's lovely, but it's literature, if you will, up on a pedestal. Yes. 
but but to me hearing rock poetry jim morrison and many others they said to me real men real artists living today can use poetry powerfully mm -hmm. and i doubt anyone could listen to when the still sea conspires in armor and her sullen and aborted currents breed tiny monsters true sailing is dead now how can you hear that and not say my god <laughs> So I was captured. I knew it was okay. And from then on, I just wrote. Now, I will say one other thing. When I started performing the first time, mm -hmm. this was during the Vietnam War era, and I was a passionate and remain a passionate anti-war person. Right. And I wrote my poetry against the war, against racism, against killing. And I rhymed. My my work rhymed. My, when my muse says rhyme, God damn it, I rhyme. I, I don't argue. So a friend of mine pulled me aside and said, Richard... It's you don't have to rhyme, man. It's really, in fact, it's considered passe. You you want to be fashionable. You want to recite free verse out there that means nothing, and you'll be famous. And I said, I don't give a crap. When my muse gives me a rhyme, I say thank you. <laughs> Your muse must be my sister. <laughs> <laughs> Probably. I'm, a rhymer, I'm a rhymer too from the heart. <laughs> That's how I started. <laughs> I refuse to let go of it. <laughs> I, I don't understand the attitude that says, I'm going to correct it. I'm going to remove all my rhymes because it's not fashionable. Mm -hmm. It's not done. Mm -hmm. Smart people don't do that. If you want to be invited to the right parties, you shouldn't rhyme. I said, you know what? I'm in the good company of my muse, and I'm in the good company of a few fellow colleagues. That's pleasure enough for me. Okay, <laughs> we've set the stage. Why is it important, Rick, that we do what we do as poets? Why is poetry important? I want to know. That's a good question. It's a question that I think so many poets are passionate intellectuals. No problem. I wear that badge with honor. I think that to try to use language without poetry leaves you in a gray, sullen world. Poetry is fire to me. Poetry is passion of the heart. Poetry sings love. It sings pathos. It sings despair. And to live a life without that would be to live a life without music. It can't be done, not righteously, not by a soul. I don't think there's a poet out there. Now, you know, we all have know our tragic poets, and we all spend our time in tragedy from time to time. But my heart is enriched by the joy of poetry, and I wouldn't give it up. Wow, very nice, very nice. Let's go back to the early stages of your development again. You talked about reading some heavy-duty books like The Iliad. What was another experience where you learned that poetic language had power? Okay. I have always had a love of indigenous culture. I told you I, I read anthropology mm -hmm. yes. <laughs> in, in grade school, right? Yes. My family did camping. A, a father on a working class salary could have 
camping trips, who could do vacations. And we went, and I always found myself looking for indigenous culture and trying to understand indigenous culture's ways. And I was so appreciative of their desire to live. And the phrase is tread lightly on the earth. Okay. Okay. And that to me was the pinnacle of respect for God's earth. If you're a, a divinity, if you're a person that understands God and has a, some appreciation, of that, how could you not respect God's earth? How could you not tread lightly? And, and I found in indigenous culture a respect for earth, a respect for humanity. And I read a book when I was very young, again, still a grade school experience for me, where they told a story. It was in Sitting Bull's biography that when he tired of talking to people who would make agreements with him and then void them, he decided to go to Washington to talk to the president. And he traveled by train. And he describes being struck, appalled at the poverty at the sickness, at the starvation allowed in these, quote, civilized cities. He couldn't believe it. And his reaction was, no person in my tribe would be allowed to live in such degradation. And that he couldn't understand how these people with such technology and such a clear, if you will, administrative or armament power and authority, how could they treat each other so badly to allow this poverty to coexist in their proud cities? He couldn't believe it. He just said, no one would be allowed to live like that in our village. And to them, in their culture, and again, remember, I, had, I ate up all this anthropology. Mm -hmm. <laughs> I knew what side of, of the civilization my pendulum was toward. <laughs> and I thought, man, this is the stuff. So when in seventh grade, my English teacher said, write something about Native Americans. I said this. When I go hunting for the bear, my hunting bow and arrows I wear. I see the bear to go to his cave. I to corner me, oh, what a knave. I put an arrow on my bow, I quickly bend and let it go. The arrow went into his side, and right away I knew he died. As I knelt down to take his skin, I saw another of his kin. The bear came at me, bared his teeth. I pulled my knife out from a sheath. I threw my knife, it missed its mark, but the bear kept coming through the dark. I put an arrow on my bow, I swiftly bend and let it go. The arrow barely pierced his side, but even that could break his stride. The bear slowed down, and then he stopped. By then, I think I could have dropped. The bear stood still and looked at me, and then I knew this had to be... The end. <laughs> I have a story similar to Sitting Bulls in terms of what he witnessed. I moved yeah. to Washington, D.C. 12 years ago from the state of Oregon. And I did not know that the area that I moved to, a very nice area, there was a part of that area that when Dr. King was killed in 1968 and the area was burned down, 
It was still that way 10 years ago. Still almost burned to the ground. And I thought to myself, now, wait a minute. This is Washington, D.C., the capital of the world. How could they allow a part of the city to be just absolutely destroyed up until 10 years ago? Not 20 years ago. Dr. King was killed in 1968. I moved here in 2010. So it's very disheartening. It's a beautiful area now. But for that length of time, and this is the nation's capital, you're not taking care of your people? I just don't understand that. I still don't. I still don't. I may have wandered close to an answer, but... I, I hope that will suffice. All right, then. All great writers, Rick, have great writing influences. Who are some of yours, and what makes them great in your eyes? Homer. Tell me more. Homer first. <laughs> Homer Simpson? I, all right. I, I got to tell you, <laughs> the poetry of the ancient Greek poet Homer moved me tremendously. There is descriptions of the human heart. There's descriptions of, if you will, the terrain, the sea, the prep for battle, the strategy, written so beautifully. Here's an interesting side story to that, okay? Many years later, and I'm in my 20s, I traveled west to go to a big meditation festival. And with the best of intentions, things went very sour. Okay, it, it, it broke apart into an uh, ugly scene. So my wife and I were making our way back to Florida from this campsite in Mount Zion National Park, Utah. We picked up a hitchhiker. I'm trimming the story down a lot. We picked up a hitchhiker. And now you have to picture this. Picture a hippie van, Sirsa 1971 with uh, beads and feathers and God's eyes and pictures of gurus and a VW van, right? So it's all decked out, right? Full-on hippie regalia. So this young man who we picked up hitchhiking, he is archetypal farm boy. Big hulking lad. It's hot the middle of summer. He's wearing uh, overalls with only one strap hooked on, uh, bare-chested otherwise, wild hair, farm boy hair. Anyway, so I introduced myself. I was going by the name Nemo at the time. I was teaching yoga. So I'm Nemo. I introduced my wife. Kid comes in the van and he's looking around, hardly believing his eyes, right? And he said, oh, what the hell is this stuff? And I thought, I could tell him we're meditation people. I could tell him we're spiritual. I could tell him we're on a mission from this thing. But I thought, let me make it really simple. I said, we're magicians. Enough said. So, okay. So we're driving along. Now, my friends had warned me it was crucial. This was an air-cooled van. We're driving across the painted desert in Arizona in midsummer. It's 118 degrees. They told me, under no circumstances, drive during the heat of the day. 10 o'clock, you got to be turned off, pulled over, wait until dusk. Then you can drive because you can't drive this van in the sun, in the summer, in the desert. It'll kill the van. Then you've got to deal with getting this van back. Okay, no problem. So at 10 o'clock, I, I tell the kid, look, wherever we are at 10 o'clock, man, we got to pull over. 
is that okay? He said, yeah, sure, whatever. So at 10 o'clock, I see a little sign, uh, Navajo, Arizona, population 64. I pull in. The town is two trailers and a motel being rehabilitated. Doors are off. Windows are out. It's stripped to the bone, and it's being repainted and reworked. And I thought, we had put our last 10 bucks in the gas tank. So we were on the gravel, right? So I thought maybe I can earn some money. Maybe I can do some carpentry work or this or that or do something and earn, earn another 10 bucks for, for gas. So I go over to the trailer. There was air conditioning humming. And I said, excuse me, uh, my wife and I are working our way back to Florida. And I was wondering, is there any work I can do to, to earn a few dollars? I said, I'm not asking for anything. I'm happy to work. My We're working our way back. So if there's anything, she, the lady says, yeah, fine, listen, absolutely. My husband needs help. He's trying to do all this himself, and he's crazy. I'm going to tell him he needs to hire you to do some work, just something. I said, oh, God, that's great. She said, listen, it's so hot out there. Good God, come inside. When she opened the door, it was air conditioned in the trailer, and this blast of life-giving cold air came out. I said, listen. That, that's really generous of you. And I really appreciate it more than you. I said, but my wife is expecting. I would be thrilled if she could come in and sit with you. I'll wait outside. I, I don't want to impose. She said, oh, don't be silly. Go tell your wife to come on here. You guys can wait. My husband's on the phone right now. When he gets off, you'll be fine. And I thought, oh, my God, this is so much better than I even hoped. So I go tell the wife, come on, hun. You get to sit in the air conditioning while I work. And she goes, oh, well, it works for me. So, so, and I thought, I don't want to ask to bring this big hulking farm boy. I said, so are you cool waiting? Oh, wait. Yeah, right. One thing I missed. When I introduced myself and my wife, I said, so what's your name? He said, oh, no, you don't want to know my name. And I thought, I've heard of identity problems, but not even wanting to tell your name. It's, it's bad magic to do that. I said, sir. Let me say this. If you will please tell me your name, I will tell you something amazing and fantastic about your name. My wife looks at me like, what are you doing? You, 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 you make shit up? What the hell? And I said, please tell me your name. He said, I got the dumbest name, and my name's Homer. <laughs> and I said, my friend, you don't know the power of that name. He said, no, it's a dumb name. I said, no, brother, it's not. I said, let me ask you, have you ever heard the name Ulysses? He said, oh, man, now that's a name, man. That's awesome. Now I wish they named me that, man. Why the hell did they name me Homer? God, it's so stupid. Nobody, that's just hard. I said, wait. I said, who is Ulysses? He said, oh, I guess he's some ancient warrior from the Bible or something. I said, no, no, this is older than the Bible. What? I said, the reason you know about this ancient warrior named Ulysses is because of the power of a poet named Homer. Wow. He went, why come nobody told me that? I said, I don't know why they didn't. They did, and there you are. And he's like, man, that's cool. And I go, yep. Yes, indeed it is. All right, so then we go into this trailer. We're going to chill until the guy's ready to have me work. When we walk in, there are books all around the trailer. There's bookshelf after bookshelf 
it turns out they're a spiritual bookstore. Oh. <laughs> and there's books on yoga. There's books on Kundalini. There's books on out-of-body travel. There's books on UFOs. There's books on pyramids. And in fact, <laughs> they had books on reflexology. You've heard of reflexology? Yes. Okay. Turns out my wife's last job, she had worked at a book bindery <laughs> making books. The last book she made before she quit was a book on reflexology, and they had 10 of them right <laughs> there in that trailer. <laughs> so Homer, as you can see, yes. means a lot. Give me one more. <laughs> I, I'm, I'm going to say, <laughs> I, I cannot pass on Shakespeare. I can't do that. All but right. I will say this. <laughs> one of the other writers that had a profound impact on me was... Dr. John Lilly, and I'll tell you why. Okay. He wrote quite a bit about understanding language and communication and the language of animals, specifically dolphins. And he wrote books about his experiments trying to communicate with dolphins. And consequently, he, he thought a lot about language. He thought a lot about communications. He thought a lot about intraspecies communications. And in his writing, he also compared our relationships with our cats, with our dogs, with our other pets. And to me, that struggle to find a way to communicate across these, if you will, these great intellectual or consciousness differences had a real strong impact on me. Hmm. And it, it, it's always meant a lot. And But I have to say one more, one more writer, philosopher, who was pivotal for me was Lao Tzu. Lao Tzu, again, when I was just a kid, I had an uncle who had, he was a Mason and he was evidently the, the right kind of Mason where he was concerned and interested in spirituality and intellect and philosophy. He had books on Zen and that was my introduction. And I thought Lao Tzu wonders whether he's Lao Tzu dreaming he's a butterfly or is he a butterfly dreaming he's Lao Tzu? And I thought that, that is profound. And later when I took my first pen name was A.D. letters, A.D. Vance Dao, T-A-O. Rick, <laughs> please share a poem. Oh, sir, I'd be honored. I'm going to read from my last book, or from my next book coming up, Stone Poetry. This is one that I had such a great honor to write. I'm a student of comparative religion, strictly on my own. I never took courses in it, but I've read widely. I've read the Bhagavad Gita, the Koran, the Upanishads, about six different Bibles, the Urantia book, the books of the Templars, on and on. And I was asked early on in the Zoom poetry era to write a poem about the state of consciousness called Shunya. It's a Hindu concept about that experience of oneness with the world, with reality, that, that kind of perception. And I thought, oh my God, how dare I? How absolutely, <laughs> how can I do that? To an Indian audience, write something about a Hindu concept. 
but I've been a meditator for a long time and I gave it a try and here's the results my friend okay Shunya subtitled nothingness with twinkles when we follow an adept there's every chance our feet get wet we drop our burdens along the way never stop to kneel or pray we've left our burdens as we stray no climbing to the peaks to see just a silent song of never be in quietude we spend our day we do not chatter seldom play in quiet humble meekly walk never whine never bark carry what burdens ere we must while dropping greed and pride and lust the vast expanse of space and time even leaving silence far behind when men invented zero to measure more than joy and less than treasure even science says most of space is empty now as are molecules just as empty wow if every human could be compressed so that all the emptiness was removed altogether they'd require so little space they could all be placed inside one room if matter was reduced to protons electrons and the rest they'd roll around quite easily in a little birdie's nest that's a lot of empty space, it seems, so much in atoms, molecules, and even dreams. But shunya is a special knowledge, yet you may not have learned of it in school or college. All that emptiness, it seems, is far more present, though once it seemed unpleasant. The physicist insists on this, the yogi and the guru too, although to some it might look like bliss, it's all just nothing and that's quite true between the atoms in a molecule there's an awful lot of space between the guru and the chela there's a golden stretch of grace nothingness abounds it's true it's part of the illusion just like you and though it seems that yet we are the truth it seems is far from clear in physicists and chemists lab they tied a molecule down to a slab it seems in science it's also true there's really not so much of me or you though some might scoff in dumb derision at the rude acuteness of this vision it requires neither abstract calculation nor long division in the great vast reaches of time and space the table set so let's say grace the planet and the nebula upon this we can surely rely in inner space our sanctum sure and yet there's still no stature to adore the silence of the mountaintop can bring the noisy mind to stop and as the chatter dies away the inner sun renews the day the whole of consciousness is revealed in the silent spinning of the wheel the mantra works to quiet thought to remind us of the vision lost the noisy mind has redefined just what the self is so we find in contemplation's garden gold there are such fruit as we've been told but still if cluttered is your mind all these treasures you've yet to find Finny. Wow. of course i need a minute to allow that piece to digest inside my mind my heart and everywhere else but to me it was like walking through a maze 
What do you think about what I just said? It is an awful lot to contemplate. It's essentially contemplating contemplation. And and when we bring our minds to bear Mm -hmm. on whether it be the inner workings of physics, the inner workings of consciousness, it's not a matter of that we can blink through like a 30-second spot. It's a different kind of mentation. Mm-hmm. And I think the philosopher, the poet, the lover, these people are prepared to think deep and long about a given subject. And I, I think it's almost unfair in a way to read something that that rich yeah. in concepts. Mm-hmm. Uh, it takes some digestion. It's a full meal and then some. Which brings up a question. People often talk about accessibility. How hard should you work to solve a poem? You raise an interesting question. And what I think of my answer Mm -hmm. as a poet is this. From time to time, I write with every emphasis on accessibility, on every emphasis on narrative, on every effort to communicate a given thought or point or projection but because i do that because i work so hard so often to do that exact thing Mm -hmm. i do occasionally allow myself a fit of absolute fantasy and i have a dear brother uh, you may know robert cole whose work in in one poem spans the length width of science, cosmology, history, culture. It is, it is a joyride. And, and I admire his work because simply because I try so hard to do the other thing, to make a specific argument, if you will, to have a real narrative arc. You know what? It was such an unfair thing to throw at you first. Let me throw you one that's very narrative. No, no. No, I'm enjoying this because I would be afraid to trip the light fantastic with my mind. And so I like this. Don't give me anything else. I want (laughs) to be authentically you because that's why you should read a poem twice or three times or whatever so that you can understand it or at least gain a better awareness for what it is. And you write in a snippet like this. There's no way that I could encompass all that you'd written. Wow, I like this. Sure. <laughs> but help me though. How do you do it that you're able to trip the light fantastic? That's what I want to know. Okay. Yeah. Now, to me, that poem, although it's very philosophical and covers a wide range of concepts, that to me is still a narrative poem. So okay. my standards of the narrative are a little different. I will say that just recently I allowed myself, I, I occasionally call them my Robert tributes where I'll write a piece <laughs> that is f- free flight of fancy. Just, in fact, the last one I wrote in that vein was for, it's called for Robert. It is literally one of those, if you will, metaphorical sleigh rides okay. where in one moment we're, we're bouncing off our tourists with a left turn at Hammurabi and then make a right turn at the Delphic uh, Oracle and then perpendicular will hit on Trump. <laughs> or Chuck E. Cheese. Okay. There you go. Yeah, absolutely. Well, would you share that piece with us? Would you share that piece? Okay, here we go. This is called For Robert. <laughs> uh, a, a definite uh, drift into the non-narrative. For Robert. The new 
clay tablet wouldn't have it. The wax facts tracks those reluctant honeybees reduced to 11-dimensional elves, uplifting cuneiform cutaways in simple seizure settings, regretting nothing, noting upon Olympus Mons, the greater creator, Goblecki Tempe left its mark, the solar spark, as Quizzicotl crept into the cave, past the nave where Theseus throttled his centaur foe to relinquish the title to Medusa's blow, money-back guarantee which speckled Tetsakopli, Craved and carved high in a branch in a Bodhi tree, high above where the mist could see, careening from Machu Picchu's summit, or my accolades, allies not far from it. Dare, Osiris, notch the epoch with a stroll down mighty Tiber's shore, accompanied by the mighty Ekbalam, whose shady presence lured Anubis up from his nesting resting place, fanned Mats feathered breast. So Isis found relief from her grief, undead from the head, and what the viper said that has been written so far it has been done. <laughs> now, would you view that poem as being whimsical? My only argument with whimsical is I'd like whimsical to have a little more fun in it than that. Oh. <laughs> this, this is straight facial wandering. Okay. Um, but I guess because you read it with such, I don't know, excitement, <laughs> it just made it seem as if it, that if it was fun. <laughs> <You know? laughs> the energy well, is just so impactful. It just made me think, wow. <laughs> thank you, brother. Yeah. <laughs> Your new poetry collection, Stone right. Poetry. Where can we find it? Is it available now? It's not quite printed yet. It's still at the publishers. I have the great good fortune to be presented this time through Red or Green Books, Marissa Prada's label. She is such, not only a wonderful poet and human being, but she really cares about her authors. In the past, I've used Ex Libris, which has done okay. Nothing wrong with that. But it's when you're dealing with a corporate environment, you're dealing with a corporate environment. You're one number in a long series of numbers, and you get the very impersonal service. But when I uh, talked to Marissa about uh, printing, uh, we had just a marvelous talk. Okay. And everything I know about her work uh, has just touched me deeply. She's a very intelligent woman with a heart as big as a planet. Uh, she's just a grand soul who I think believes strongly in, in the work of poetry and what it's capable of. And uh, after having a few chats with her, she said she'd be publishing my next book. So I can't speak highly enough of Melissa, Marissa Prada, and Red or Green Books. All right. So again, a little bit more about what inspired the collection. It's, it started out simply. I am a poet that works, I work at poetry. Mm -hmm. I am committed to writing multiple pieces every day. And of them, I view a certain amount of this as polishing my craft. Mm -hmm. I write a lot of poetry that I never show because simply I write for practice. I write for emphasis. I write for exercise and metaphors. And in fact, one of the authors that, whose work I admire, although he's not a poet, 
Um, Italo Calvino, I don't know if you know his work, writes a lot of absurdist prose, and he makes a case that you should write, not only daily, but you should write about things you would never show. Take the simplest, dumbest, most inconsequential, innocuous object or thing or act, and write about it, write it thoroughly, write it with passion. And then he said this way, and, and this is what I like best, when the muse does come a-knocking, my craft has been polished, and I'm prepared to answer the door with verve. Now, would you view your ability to write poetry as a creative gift or creative art? Both. I think of poetry both as an art and a craft. Okay. Now, there are poets who write once a year only when the spirit moves them, and that's fine. That is an honorable thing, and they are the artists of poetry. Some of us are artists and craftsmen where we take and polish the work. We polish and polish and polish. And even when the muse isn't knocking, I'm going to write about something. I'm going to take some prompt out of this clear blue sky, and I'm going to bang something out about it that I may not ever show. I, I have in, I keep folders by year. In my, let's say my 2022 folder, I probably have 400 poems, although I only published 130 of them. And, and this way, I know that when it comes for that time when I, I heard the other day a phrase on NPR, and it was a phrase about another issue, about another thing. They, they used the phrase, the capital city of Fa. Now, in point of fact, there is a capital city of Fa, and it's in a, a province in Russia, etc., etc. There, there's that story. That's the reality of it. But that phrase hit my ear so felicitously, the capital city of Fa, that I wrote a piece with starting from that line that goes in a completely <laughs> other direction, very fanciful, almost mythic, almost cartoony fairy tale-ish mm -hmm. and I was so pleased by it. it just it was one of those poems once I grabbed up the pen and put down the paper man it just poured out of my pen and it's a lovely little piece uh, a nice and a little mythic parable a little mythic fable and uh, although knowing me I got little science sprinkled in a little <laughs> little history sprinkled in here and there I was charmed by it. And even though I wrote, I thought it was, that was a particularly nice one. So are you attempting, Rick, to teach with your poetry? Because as I listened to the last piece, I heard different names that made me want to go Google. <laughs> oh, <laughs> thank you, my friend. Or... Thank you. I took a motto mm. when I began sharing my poetry, that as a poet, I wanted to make people think and mm -hmm. laugh. For example, I wrote a poem about the octopus, mm -hmm. and I thought, I don't want to just write it by cutesy, little, silly. Th I wanted to put real data in there, so I jammed it full of octopus facts, so you'll learn things like they have a circular brain, <laughs> their blood is purple. Somebody said to me, Rick, your science poems, there's so much detail in there. Do you like researches? I said, you know what? I have often 10 pages of research to write one poem because I want to make sure that not only do I convey an interesting idea, but I also give you some facts and maybe it'll stimulate some curiosity. And it's very much a part of what I do. 
Tell me about the title, my friend. Stone poetry. Okay. I have, since I was a child, enjoyed the patterns of wood, the patterns of stone, of wood grain, if you will, of the stone grain. And I have from time to time taken wood grain, taken stone grain, and created from that as an inspiration my own interpretation of that grain, of that pattern, of the various chemicals, the various compounds in a stone that to me evoke, it's like the earth's story. Wood grain is the tree's story. The stone reflects the story of the earth that it was formed in. So I did a series of art pieces, probably close to 200 from looking at certain stones and then drawing for them, eliciting patterns, and then using color and line to develop my own narrative from that base story that the stone lays out. And since that was a, a thing that moved me so much during 2022, uh, I decided to, to take that same metaphor and, and make my poems uh, stone poems, uh, stone poetry. And it also harkens back to my love of Jim Morrison's work uh, out there in the perimeter, there are no stars. Out there, we stoned immaculate. Tell us about the book's cover. It is literally one of the stones in my collection. <laughs> From it, I have elicited probably a dozen different treatments of those intricate patterns, the shading, the fractures, the intermixed composition. It, it, I find it as interesting as a person. People have their different threads, their different narratives, the impact of their childhood, the impact of their emotional life, what they've dealt with in science, what they've dealt with in, in their stresses. And they have these beautiful, complex personalities. And to me, stones have a personality. A tree, wood has its personality. Please share, Paul. Oh, sir, I'd be honored to. Having just mentioned that poem about the uh, the capital city of Fa, I'd like to share that one with you. All right. Okay. Now I want you to settle back for a second, and I want you to picture yourself seven or eight years old. Your favorite elder is telling you a story, and this is what you hear. The capital of Fa. Deep in the forests of La, near the ancient river of Dadi, where the treasures of Da are known to dwell, and the silent mountain monks ring their primeval bell. I led my horse down the perilous course, where the rocks precarious fell with great force, where the crumbling trail was never measured by those out hunting the sacred treasures. And when the unlucky all too often fall to the valley below, so trembled every pilgrim who chose that dangerous course to go. Never minding when the hiding trail crumbled, hardly catching his breath when his courser stumbled. And the sight of the spinning valley below alone nearly scared some right to death, don't you know? The castle, barely visible through the clouds that flowed, scudding and tearing through the sharp crags of ice, as if it's the slippery course was delicately trimmed with frosting, so nice. 
The wind, ferocious, would tug and chase, blasting these valiant pilgrims on the rock's steep face. More than once his brave horde blanched and shied at the nearby rumbling of another avalanche at their side. And as he approached the valley floor, a volley of arrows did restore his attention to the final worn rocky ledge, and the dangerous tribal people had sworn their pledge to protect the fortifications of the capital city of Fa. They'd sworn to their mothers on the sacred river Ka. They'd guard with their lives the final approach to Fa from any wandering wayfarer, no matter who they are. And the grand vizier of the great castle Fa had cast his spell on the vineyard of Kani, and although he knew their warehouse was empty, he knew that any goblet from the great capital Fa would magically fill with a sparkling vintage unmarred. And as the young knight errant approached the castle gate, where the imperial sacred ben was well armed and lay in wait, surrounding the castle Fa was the equestrian force, well known like Caesar Equestres, so appointed on horse. Those guarding the eastern gate of the sun was a force always known as to be number one. These, like Alexander's, were known as companions, and it was known they were as brave as granite stanions. But in the west, so lauded and praised were those who could risk all right to their grave. Known like Gordian's ancient warriors, the sacred band was this band of soldiers who, although the ancient vicious lineage among them had no molderers. But our hero had a better weapon than all these who might bellow and deafen. He leapt from his shadow, his saddle, just before the gate. He upraised one hand and bade the soldiers all wait. They leaned in to hear what he had to say, and he broke out his best joke. Now they laughed off their heads. Into the palace he strode, bold as brass. He had them all laughing till they fell on their ass. In the throne room our hero arrived. He explained boogie-woogie and all that hep jive. Right there on the spot they made that lad king, and they kissed his behind and gave him some kind of ring. He waved them away with a generous gesture, like the flagon with the dragon. That was not quite his kind of pestle. To me, you an orator's orator. Because I noticed in the two pieces, this particular one and the one before, your voice changed. It was different. One time it was more somber, and the other time it was more gleeful. What I'd like to know is, what is the relationship between your speaking voice and your written voice? Good question. I will answer it by saying this. I have the dilemma that a lot of serious-minded, I would say, thoughtful people have. I know that it's difficult for me to speak in what I'm going to call small talk. Okay. I am most at ease talking with intelligent people about serious subjects, right. even artistic serious, even silly serious. But I try my best to be a good communicator. Now, that's my normal life. When I am reading poetry or reading my dearest love, Shakespeare, then I am possessed by a spirit and I am so happy to let that energy out. 
I often get comments that I am a lively speaker. I am a dramatic speaker. I speak with some effect and that pleases me. I take no credit for it. I am so fortunate. I've had my ecstatic visions. I've had deep experiences of solitude. And of course, like all human beings have had my share of tragedy. I've turned to philosophy to ameliorate that. I am Eastern European by heritage. And whether you want to talk about the Russian soul or Eastern European angst, my earliest memory of international issues was in grade school. I came across an article on Bertram Russell's anti-nuclear weapons speech, okay. which was treated with insult, treated with calls. You know what happens to peace workers, right? The people who defend indigenous rights. They're called out as terrorists. They're called out as communists. Whatever, whatever the favorite word of disparagement is. And to me, people who speak from heart speak with a passion. And that to me, passion is what life should be. And I feel sorry for people who live a life without passion, who will say to you when you ask them what's new, oh, same stuff, different day. You wonder, when are they going to live their life? When do they take their life in both hands and say, this is my life. Who can I help? What can I do to make this a better world? And for those people that are just drifting, it, 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 it's tragic. It's tragic. Something else I wondered about, and you touched on it with your last few statements here. Does it hurt you to write poetry? If not, why not? Well, good question, good question. I will say it this way. There are times in extreme melancholy, that I have used poetry as a bit of a life vest, as a bit of a lifesaver. And I know for me, if I can write it out, if I can draw a cartoon about it, I feel better. I, I have set that thing aside. My father died a very tragic, sudden death. And to me, until I could write a cartoon about it until I could describe it. I felt that I had freed it from living in my heart. I have had, as we all do, romantic losses, romantic tragedies, and as well as romantic joys and ecstasies. And from time to time, I've treated those all one, I think, effective story. When I was a youngster in elementary school, I had such a fortunate experience. My principal at the elementary school I went to was so committed to music as an intrinsic part of education. She made sure that every first and second grader got to go not just to the symphony, but to go to the symphony in the most beautiful hall in Pittsburgh, the Syrian mosque. 
And when I got to go the first time, here I am, first grader, what are you, five, six, I'm six years old. I'm in this cathedral of music and they played a Tchaikovsky show. Now, my reaction was tears. It grabbed my soul and shook it. And I felt an empathy with the author. And I wept. And this principal comes over to me. She said, Ricky, what's wrong? And I said, the music, it's so beautiful. She said, yeah, but what's wrong? And I said, the music, it's so beautiful. He was in such pain. And you know what that woman did? God, I owe her. Every time she took a class to the symphony, I got to go. Oh, wow. Music isn't just like air to me. Music isn't just like gravity. Music. Soul food, man. Soul food. Stone poetry. What are some of the predominant themes that you write about in the collection? When you talk about Rick's poetry, there's a couple common themes. Science is one. Philosophy is another. Respect for the earth. Respect for human beings. I often write tributes to brave souls. There was a story of two women, I think it was Georgia, who were accused by the president of the United States of tampering with votes. And these two brave women stood up and said no. <laughs> and when the cops came to them and said, hey, like the Klan's out to kill you, and you better leave town. They said, you know what? This is where we are. And when you see bravery like that, when you see citizenship like that, another woman was a, a brave Afghani woman in their Congress. And they told her, hey, you've been talking about women's rights. Your Taliban's coming in. You better get the hell out of here. You better go back to your little village and hide out because they're after you. She stayed. Now, it cost her her life. That woman stayed. Wow. Now, if there is anyone we should be lauding in this silly-ass world, it is people who stand up for the dignity of the human being. And you can name your heroes. There are many, and they make us proud. I, I was going to a segregated school when Dr. King was murdered. Mm. And the band director of the high school, I, I moved from Pennsylvania where we had integrated classes to Florida where it was still segregated in 1967. And, and the band director wouldn't let African-American students or Hispanic students in the band. And we went to him and said, you can't do this anymore. And he said, if I hear another word from you, you're losing your uniforms, you're not going to the band. I said, fuck you, take your uniform." Now, didn't do any good for my musical career. But that's, that's an irrelevancy because there are things you have to stand up for. And I know I'm speaking to a brave man right there opposite me right now, and you know exactly what I'm talking about. Yeah, I do. And speaking of that, here's another one of those questions that I've asked 395 or 96 times. There's so much happening in this world, Rick. 
There's the good, the bad, the ugly, as well as the indifferent. What do you view as being the role of a poet in modern day society? Super question. I asked that same question myself. Ask it a little different way, but it's the same question. I take poetry very seriously. Yes, you do. And I believe that poets are the cheerleaders of civilization. Because if you and I didn't pick up the pen, who do we leave it to? The hacks? The AI? The bots? Selling trash? We speak to the human heart. We speak to the human soul. Now, in our own way, in our own silliness, with our own prejudices, but we speak as best we can of the truth of our heart. Yes. And if there's anything that we owe civilization, it's the truth of our heart. Any fool... Any purchased purloined soul can say anything the boss wants him to say. And they do. And we hear it all the time. But when you speak your truth and when I speak my truth, we are speaking to the heart of civilization. And there is no lesser thing a poet can do. Question that. As a poet, or as poets, are we required to write about the issues of the day. Why can't we just write about rocks and flowers and birds and trees and pears and strawberries? Talk to me, Rick. I'm listening. Again, brother, an intelligent man only asks intelligent questions. I have to salute you, sir. No, I, I tell you this. For every one of people like you and me, who want to address the important, impactful areas. Someone's going to write about the fact that their red shirt doesn't look just as red as they'd like it to look. Or their girlfriend didn't scratch their ear just the way they really want it to be. Or those sad people who only want to share sadness and pain. And I've heard them and you've heard them too. Is that the best of poetry? Oh, God, no. Is is the commercial jingle the best of poetry? No. But as long as there are poets that speak the truth of their heart, poetry will live. Please share a poem. Thank you, sir. I'd be honored to. This is one of my new favorites. This is called My Totem Token. We all have our totems, the things we look to. This is a little poem about mine. Totem token. My totem token is not a flag. It will not upon the bloody ground be dragged. It will never fulfill some gruesome pledge or order some miscreant merrily off some pitiless edge. It will not upon the gridded sports ground be paraded. It will never unto those vivid cash-driven spirits be supplicated. It will not spur the clash of classes, nor ever bring to their bruised feet the huddled masses. Above no battleground will it wave, nor handsomely decorate sepulcher or grave. Mankind is my totem, despite how regularly the gruesome gods have smote them, or placed the bloody clot 
in one big pipe and smoke them, or boil them up until they're cherry red and ripe all gloating, or place them, chase them, dressed upon some golden plate, or ignoring countless disasters, cast their eyes to heaven and call it fate. <laughs> These fragile, funny creatures so nobly born are all too often by their twa-penny fellows spurned, burdened, blanched, and scorned. But as for me, I laud the ragtag clan and hereby celebrate the noble race of man, ennobled by the lauded fiery Promethean spark withstand in the dark, ever indefatigable in the endless artful ways of love resolve. Whether here in earth life or high in heaven above, they heed the clarion call of love. I celebrate these resilient beings who in a universe of inchoatic chaos carve out somehow fruitful meanings. <laughs> I have a funny story if you have a minute. Yes. I was working at an engineering lab. I'd been on the road doing light shows, right? I was really living the free art life, but things fell apart. I had kids, I had to make a living. So I took a job in an engineering lab managing their computers, right? Very conservative environment. I cut my hair, shaved my beard, dressed, shoot and tie every day. This one engineer had a sense of humor, happy, lucky, go easy going guy. We start talking and I started reading him some of my poetry, right? And I, I read him the science stuff because knowing as an engineer, it would hit with him. So he was taken by it. So he says one day, hey, man, listen, what would you think if I like I got you a gig on Carson? And I go, yeah, OK, listen, don't even think about it. No, it's not going to work. So he walks into my office about a month later. He says, Rick, I got a call on five. It's Carson. They want to talk to you about performing on the Carson show. And I'm like, Are you, you're kidding me. And he's, no, man, dude, it's the Carson show. And he hands me a letter that he had gotten. He had written to them, sent them poetry of mine. And they want to talk to me about performing poetry on the Carson show. This is 80, 89. Johnny Carson? Yes. <laughs> Johnny Carson. So this guy calls me up. He's, you know, he says, I'm the producer of the show. And we like your stuff. It's funny. It's witty. We love the science. We love you hitting on environmental issues. This is great. Now, he said, here's the thing. What we'd like you to do is come on and we'll throw crazy words into you and you just create a poem out of it. And I said, well, that's not poetry. That's performing monkey stuff. I don't do performing monkey stuff. I read poetry. I'm a writer of poetry. And you like me. You're interested because of what you've read that I write. I don't sit down and write spontaneous free verse, although I could. It's not what I do. And if you want me for what I am and what I do, you've got what I do. I'll do that. And he goes, no, no, it's not what we're like dog shoe pipe thing. Can you do that? And I go, not interested. Thanks. Goodbye. And the engineers, you you turned out Carson? What are you crazy? And I said, my friend, I'm a poet. I'm not a poet to be famous. I'm not a poet to be on TV. I'm a poet because I don't have a choice. I'm a poet because I have to write. I'm a poet because my heart will break if I can't pour this stuff out. And 
I'm not an idiot. I'm not immune to the fame bullshit. But to me, that's what it is. It's bullshit. And I'm not into that. He said, I can't believe it. I said, I'm, I'm sure there'll be days that I regret it. When I'm the, the one poet in, in among three and no one's paying attention. They're all drinking. I get that. But I'd rather be there. Wow. It's a very touching story. Mm. Wow. I'm going to think about that one for a very long time. <laughs> Please share, Paul. Thank you, sir. I'd be honored to. It's, it's called the Temple Lion Dog. And I had this dream exactly the way it's told. Temple lion dog, flying over the temple, zounds. I watch the sacred lion dog roam the gardens fair and temple grounds. His patrol punctuated with barks and growls. I watched in interest from high above because you see that lion dog was me. During his training to patrol the temple grounds, he'd been given special barks, charmed with sacred magic sparks. Every bark a prayer, his barks profound. His sigils gleamed and glowed in air, full power beams unbounded blare. Sacred barks these powers made, such sounds profound commandeth any shade. Few are aware of the subtle war that shrieks outside the temple door. Sweet in temple souls seek solace, sanctuary peace. That glory is only part of the story. Deep sounds profound, rich in power bound. The lion dog protects the souls who come for sanctuary amidst the scrolls. More than solace, a palace so bright, a torch in the deep and temple light bright. Just outside sometimes wicked ghouls who would disturb the troubled sleep of souls who need the temple's sacred peace. The lion dog protects and guards the deep. And while I flew or observed and watched the lion dog patrolled and never stopped, my vantage point soared from high or spread and suddenly pivoting, darting deep inside the lion dog's head. I watched as dangerous spirits drifted past, almost to dare and tried at last against the temple walls and gardens pierce. Had not the sacred lion dog been so fierce. As lion dog, I strolled the garden's border and warned them off. Sure, they'd spawn some macabre disorder. Some might scoff. As I watched the lion dog drive them off, these drifting spirits mischief sought would float by dreaming lest the lion dog stop. The lion dog barked and warned them away. They'd flee his massive jaws. These shades would shrink before his awesome law. Keeping demons from the grounds, his guardianship was more powerful than mortal eye might see or any mortal ear hear sound which shades these wizards sent to temple to dissemble that thereby acolytes might shriek and tremble though the enemies of the temple crow and bray that's why our patrolling lion dog in his sacred voices say we are trained for courage and on sacred blessed food are nourished thus our strong walls protect us from the temple might flourish while i on watch Guard our grounds from villains and demons, which I knew and sensed even when they were harshly seen. The lion dog bounds across the grounds, patrolling the temple from any noisome sound. I watched as villains tried to worry, shake the gentle vibrations of the sacred place. And while on patrol I spotted villains near, I am bound to face them and shame their fear. My barking is marked in air by floating sacred sigils like monks 
marking ancient scrolls and vigils. These floated in as if marking, barking signals. A lion dog, I marked the border. A sacred guardian protects the ancient order. Oh. That was epic. Thank you. Has a poem you've written ever humbled or frightened you? Humbled, yes. Frightened, no. Mm -hmm. I, I have, at times in my poetic exercises, purposefully attacked a theme that was abhorrent to me. Mm. As an exercise in stretching my brain and my skills, I wrote, for example, a, 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 a poem that lauded war. Okay. Now, I have been passionately anti-war for, I think, for several lives, but I thought it would be a good stretch, a good intellectual exercise to, uh, to write that. Now, just recently, I, I spent some time with a person who was listening to right-wing right -wing radio. Okay. And I heard this pathetic character rant over and over about a subject called virtue signaling. Now, to the uninitiated in right-wing speak, virtue signaling means any argument that progressives, that humanists have against right-wing attitudes is really just to make them feel bad, but it's not really a belief. I can read you virtue signaling pro and con. Yes, I love it. Here we go. Virtue signaling. Virtue signaling is a thing just to somehow gain all those would-be saints the big brass ring. If virtue to you is somehow a kind of bummer, oh, friend, just get in line and take a number. The implication is, my friend, that you're just posing as if that's the thing you think you're nosing. But you, old stick, don't give a hang. You're just out there doing your own thing. If it looks like virtue and sounds like it, too, after all, isn't that what we're supposed to do? Pick up litter, feed the poor, care for the planet, be a good citizen, maybe a little more? Why not participate in We the People? Don't just hide out in some neighborhood steeple. The people's government needs your voice. But if you're too busy to share your views, don't be surprised at the daily news. And the vote, too, not just once four years round, share your perspective. Who knows what will be found of the people, by the people, no enemy here. But if your views are secret, what's not clear? In the exchange of ideas we all might learn, then perhaps your neighbor's views might not give you a turn. Love your neighbor like yourself. Don't advocate for some damn evil elf. Signal virtue in civic life. Isn't that, isn't its purpose just to reduce strife? But whether those who disparage virtue end up in Dante's inner circle, <clears throat> will they like compassion then or will they hope for such gentle signals friend i just heard a zealot denouncing virtue signaling saying that anti-racists are a thing doesn't aim for virtue lead the way no matter what the hostiles want to say and if you aim for a better world and even your banners say those words if virtue signaling is a thing exactly what does its opposite bring so that's an intelligent address of the topic of virtue signaling. Here's its alternative, written from uh, a little rightward tilt. Oh, though, this is virtue signaling alternative number four. Oh, those liberals, 
they like to say that we should strike a plainer, saner path today. Sure, that's nice. Uh, what they have then, not men, but mice. Virtue signaling makes me laugh. They all dislike and hate the same as me. They just conceal it to make fun of me. They just pretend they're better. See, better than you and better than me. Clean the planet. Save the whales. Do they have any bleeding, broken idea what this entails? They say, treat animals nicer. I say, just put them on the grill and serve them hot and spicier. They claim to like their fellow men. This is exactly the stuff that I can't stand. Don't drive fast. Please don't litter. Virtue signaling. As for me, I'm no quitter. Yeah, I like my noisy guns. That's just exactly my idea of fun. And as far as school kids getting shot by guns, let's call it exercise. All I can say is they better be quick and learn to run. All this talk of treating women fair. Who needs a meeker housewife? That's far rarer. They say, don't make fun of broken people. That's just not who I am. I'm just better. Damn. I don't live in some kind of steeple. I just hate equally all the people and all those homeless. It's just too bad. What, am I supposed to be sad? And all them decorated with garbage? Then I'm, then them I'm not supposed to disparage? <laughs> Rick, we've almost reached the end of our poetic journey. But I must ask you, what do you think your work conveys about being human? Good question. I, I have to say this, brother. I have a metaphysical belief mm -hmm. that every man and every woman has the divine spark. And that the, the, the quaint phrase is every man and every woman is a star. I think we are all divinely blessed, divinely inspired, divinely charged. Uh, I do, upon request, concede that some people have their light veiled a little thicker than others. <laughs> I can only speak for myself there is a vow that I took many years ago to treat every person as my teacher. Yeah. So I try to live like my Native American brothers and sisters say, walk gently on the earth. And I try to treat my brothers and sisters how I would like to be treated. So if I exemplify that through my writing, through my acts, then I am a good human being or at least a human being attempting to be good. Now, are you hoping that stone poetry will resonate with a broad range of readers, or are you targeting a specific audience? Good question. I, I, I have to put it in this perspective. When I was a young lad, and I, I knew I had to write, I just didn't know what the hell I was going to do with it. I looked up, like we most people do, What's a successful writer? How do you become a successful writer? And they basically will tell you, pick a theme that's popular, write to that popular theme, hone your craft, write what you know. I knew right away that I didn't want to write about wrestling or boxing or football or hot cars or fashion or murder or war. That sort of narrows it down. I knew I wasn't going to be addressing the popular topics. I am happy that if I reach thoughtful brothers and sisters who can hear my voice, who 
do get encouraged to laugh, who do from time to time go to Google or their encyclopedias and look things up, then I as a writer have done my work. Right. Through writing stone poetry, my friend, what have you learned about yourself? I'll tell you, I think writing to me is always a revelation. Okay. Some poems come from a deeper place, from a sort of more self-revelatory place. I'm a very topical writer. I write a lot of stuff on social themes, and I try to write on important science themes that people should know about and think about. I will admit that I write on some pretty esoteric topics. I, I once wrote a poem about the time it takes to for a photon to go across the width of a neutron. <laughs> and about the smallest time measurement. I thought those, to me, those are interesting. And I realized these are not going to get me on the Carson show to use a metaphor, but I write for the amusement of my brothers and sisters. Do you think you were meant to be a poet? Oh, absolutely. Readily. What surprises you most about being a poet? I'm I'm honestly surprised that too many poets think we need to justify being poets. It makes me sad. Mm. If you're not thrilled that you write, you're doing it wrong. Okay? <laughs> now even if you're writing about the broken heart that your your loved one poured out in your lap. You should still enjoy that. That should still be a cathartic experience. But I, I'm, I am for those who celebrate the joy of their humanity. Yeah, I can tell. Okay. I can those tell. are my brothers and sisters. I don't care what skin color. I don't care what language. I don't care where they're at on the earth. But if you have grabbed your life with both hands and you celebrate humanity... You're my kind of folk. Wow. And sense of humor and intelligence about that. Yeah, oh boy. Now you're now you're talking, man. I want to hug you. <laughs> would you favor us? I know we're probably both running out of steam, but would you favor us with one more before we go? I'm Sir, really I would be greatly honored to do that. This is called Waskily Virus. <laughs> right. One of my COVID poems. Oh, oh, Omicron. Who's got time for Omicron? Watching, waiting, yet some incubating fool still debating. Dust to dawn shaking. Guard my friends from Omicron's taking. Wear your mask and hide your frown. Lest your next fashion with no distinction you might wear a hospital gown. Air ye old or air ye young, you've all been targeted by that wasky virus thug. Omicron, Omicron in a cough propelled. Omicron, Omicron, such disasters spelled. Omicron, Omicron, we've had enough. Omicron, Omicron, how many viri are enough? Omicron, Omicron, in a breeze or carried by some birdie sneeze. Shanghai to port the doggies fleas. Would you fly from Omicron or are you watchful dust to dawn? Visited by that rascal terrorizer. Pull your mask up if you're the wiser. 
Don't leave your nose a hanging geyser and spray and play, you atomizer. Free to launch the virus invader, a fountain splashing indicator. Lest our world come crawl a crashing and their medical staff relapsing, placing. Those of you who will acknowledge so long you've studied in school and college just to have these fools confront you as they sneering would denounce you, only later to admit it all that crap they've been saying is she it just so the vi vaccine they've been delaying and those fantastic anti-facts conveying so much trash they've piled up all come a crumbling tumbling noise some poison from their cup now would you please all their stinking lies clean up oh my god <laughs> Vinny. <laughs> request next for you creatively where do you go from here uh, of course, I've, I've begun my two, 2023 collection. Mm -hmm. I have been producing Shakespeare in, in a very unusual way. I call it Shakespeare parties. What we do is we'll pick a play, and in the pre-COVID COVID days, we would invite friends to come over, bring a copy of the book, and we would draw from a hat for parts. So it's really interesting. It, it avoids the whole casting dilemma. And, and what you get is people who are enthusiastic, interested in Shakespeare, and we read the play. And I've been doing this since 1970. It's a lot of fun. But with COVID, I can't invite people over, so we do it online. And what I do is I put up a grid of numbers and have people pick a number, and that gives them a part. So we've done this now for the three years of COVID. This year, I'm going to add a new wrinkle. In addition to the Shakespeare play we're going to do, uh, I'm also going to, going to do one of my originals. It's a, a, an interesting thing I did as a radio show. It's called the Caged Ape Band. And what that refers to is uh, the story. I'm just going to give you the, just a beginning synopsis. A primatologist teaching his chimps language, sign language, He's sitting around his house with his chimps, and they're watching the news. So he signs to them what the news story was about how badly whales are being decimated. Mm -hmm. So the chimps demand that he takes them to the UN so they could plead on behalf of the whales. <laughs> That's the setup. I won't tell you anymore, but we'll be reading that play probably in August. Take a few minutes to share with us about Poets of the East webcast as you probably guessed i like poets yes. I, I just find they're amazing and as much as i love our little zoom get-togethers they are charming you know you hear so many different voices from so many different places there it's a global experience and i love them but i also find myself saying oh you know that guy michael ingram what's he about what brought him to that place? What about that lady from over there? What about that young chap there? What's their backstory? What brought them to this? So my show, Poets of the East, which uh, for years I've had the great good fortune to often have the help of my friend Mercia Danduta, mm -hmm. who is a Romanian Czech and uh, a marvelous fellow, very deep, a scholar, a cynist. He's been a, a cultural chamber minister, over in Romania, and he brings together his knowledge of Eastern Europe and the poets there. He also, as I said, is international in scope, so he has brought on some additional voices. And together, we've done 
let's see, I think it's about 60 shows now. And each one, you'll hear some of the backstory. We do about 15 minutes to a half an hour about the poet, what's their life been, what inspiration they've had. And then the second half hour is their work. And for a long time, we were doing two authors back to back. And some, I understand, some people don't have the attention span for two hours of poetry. God bless them. They're still good people, too. <laughs> I could listen to it all day myself and listen to poets. So more often than not now, I've been doing one-hour shows, and the two-hour shows are the exception. And Mercia, unfortunately, has had some health issues. Okay. So he's had to step back a little bit. But he still often is involved. He was just involved in a show last week. It's a wonderful experience because you learn more about the poet. I think you get a better sense of where... And like your show does, where you're hearing not just the poetry, but you're hearing a little bit about it, the backstory, or more about the poet. And I, I find poets endlessly interesting. They're they're great people. Last thing, Whipstone Poetry, will it be available at all the usual places? Yes. It will be available, I think, through Amazon, and uh, you'll be able to buy it directly from me, mm-hmm. and also, of course, from Red and Green Books. I'd like to thank you for spending some time with me. (laughs) My pleasure, sir. I learned so much. And I was thinking throughout the whole conversation, if I had a bucket and I attempted to drop your mind in the bucket, the bucket could not contain the brilliance. It would be overflowing with brilliance. Thank you, brother. You're very kind. No, I view myself as being too old to lie. So there's no reason for me to make anything up. <laughs> That's exactly how I feel. You're well, let's give that bucket a good kick. <laughs> 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 to everyone who's listening, or will be listening, as I share with you every time we're together, let poetry ring somewhere throughout the land. Quintessential Listening Poetry Online Radio is available on iTunes, Spotify, SoundCloud, and Stitcher. You can also check out the website at qlpor.com. With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.